My title is Make War, the pastor and his people in the battle against sin. And over the years, it has become plain to me that not everyone likes the idea that life is war. I remember a colleague when I was teaching 40 years ago saying to me, I don't like the warfare imagery that you use. I think what we need is the family image. God is our Father, we are His children, Christians are brothers and sisters, life is fellowship. And I remember just 20 years ago, at our church in a terrible crisis, a group of members, friends whom I loved gathering around me and criticizing me because I put too much emphasis on the Christian life as a fight, a fight of faith, a fight for joy, reminding me his yoke is easy, his burden is light, lighten up with the fight Well, we all, we, we all need critics because we're all prone to distort truth by the way we use truth, not just by rejecting truth, but by the way you, you use truth. We can get a hold on a biblical truth and put such an emphasis on it that it gets all out of biblical proportion. So that a person looks at the Bible and they looks at your ministry and they say, those don't have the same proportion of the way that truth is being handled. And and the Bible is our measuring rod when it comes to proportionality of truths in our ministry, right? The Bible is our guide. And in the Bible, the Christian life is sometimes family life and In the Bible, sometimes it's the life of a farmer, and sometimes it's the life of an athlete, and sometimes it's the life of an investor, and sometimes the Christian life is the life of an apprentice, sometimes it's the life of a manager of a household, sometimes it's the life of a slave with a master, sometimes it's the life of a soldier or a warrior, and all of them are important. They're all there because they all make their appropriate contribution to a life that overcomes sin and lives in holiness and love. And if any would be missing, I assume we would, we would lose something important in the, in the conquering of our own sins and in the living of love. So, amen to biblical proportionality. When it comes to dealing directly with remaining sin in our lives, it seems to me that the images of the Christian life become less pleasant and more severe. So as as you move towards the focus on dealing with the remaining sin in your life, the images that the Bible uses seem to be less pleasant, more Severe, And the closer we get to dealing directly with our own sin and the devil, the more deadly the images become. And of course, this is not a, a stylistic thing. The biblical writers are not motivated by mixing up styles at this point. What's driving this is at the very center of our deliverance from sin is the slaughter of the Son of God. Svagidzomai means slaughter. It's translated slain usually, which is innocuous compared to slaughter, which is what you do with pigs and cattle and sheep. So one of the reasons why the images 
of our conflict with our sin become so warlike is because standing at the center of the universe and God's dealing with our sin is the slaughter of the Son of God. It's not pretty. It's not a pretty image. It's reality. It's ugly. It's the center. If God had saved us from the penalty and the power of sin another way, a peaceful way, a pleasant way, a tender way, then the Christian life, I suppose, wouldn't be such a blood-earnest affair. But with a bloody crucifixion (coughs) at the center of everything, we're not surprised that in dealing with sin that Christ came to destroy we are drawn into some very serious conflict. One dominant pattern, and we've heard it echoing through the messages, one dominant pattern of the New Testament in how God saves us from the eternal penalty and the overwhelming power of sin is this. He was killed for our sin. You were killed in him and died to sin. Therefore, kill in yourself every quivering of the corpse of sin, lest you find him to be no corpse but a captor and you dead. That's the pattern. He was killed for your sin. You were killed in him. Kill sin in yourself. That's the biblical pattern. And those are the words that are used. 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Romans 6.6, we have been united with him in a death like his. Verse 2, our old self was crucified. These are all horrible images. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with him. Those who belong to Christ, verse 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Colossians 3.3, you have died to that which held you captive. You have died and your, old, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Romans 7, 4. You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. So, he was killed and you were killed in him. You were, he was crucified. You were crucified in union with him. That's the picture. Slaughter. Then be killing sin. Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you kill the deeds of the body, the word is kill. Not lay to rest. Kill the deeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death what is earthly in you. 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I pummel my body, bring it under control, lest having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die every day. He was killed for your sin. You were killed in him. Be killing what he died to kill. That's, that's the New Testament pattern. I can't. It's not my fault. <laughs> it's not a peaceful picture. It's not a pretty picture because sin is not a pretty reality. All human suffering 
especially the suffering of the Son of God, is meant to portray to dull souls like mine, it's all human suffering, especially Christ's suffering, is meant to portray the unimaginable moral ugliness of sin and the unimaginable offensiveness of sin to God. That's why there's suffering in the world. According to Romans 8.20, God subjected the creation to futility, not because it wanted to be subjected, but because of Him who subjected it in hope for that new day coming. So God brought it down with calamities galore and diseases galore and death everywhere in order to make plain that's how ugly sin is. So all human beings hate suffering. Very few human beings hate sin. They're not getting the connection. It's a parable. Cancer is a parable. Leukemia is a parable. Arthritis is a parable. Ebola is a parable. Tsunamis are parables of the ugliness of sin. It's ugly. It should be killed. Daily, I die every day because Jesus said, take up your cross daily in Luke 9. And crosses are for dying. Sin's so ugly and so offensive that the only remedy was the death of an infinitely worthy divine substitute. Only remedy. Sin is so ugly and so offensive, all human death, billions and billions of deaths, are owing to one sin. Sin is so ugly and so offensive that everlasting conscious torment is a just and proper response. Sin is so ugly and so offensive that it justifies the slaughter of the Canaanites, men, women, and children, after 400 years so that their iniquity could be full. Sin is so ugly and so offensive that Jesus describes it in a parable as the unpayable debt of 10,000 times 20 years' wages. Sin is so ugly and offensive that God ordained 100. 1,500 years of law covenant so that every mouth would be stopped and all the world would be accountable to God and know that no one is justified by works of the law because you can't do any. 1,500 years to learn that lesson. Conflict with this ugly and offensive reality, therefore, is not a peaceful affair. It's not a pretty affair, neither on Golgotha nor in the kitchen or the bedroom or the TV room. If we're faithful, every time we meet this quivering power, we meet him with a sword. No truce, no compromise, no prisoners to the death. Every time you meet him, you're playing games otherwise. So it's entirely possible that I have overemphasized that life is war. However, um, this enemy, by the way, just a little parenthesis here. I've never read any book three times except the Bible, but one. Anybody want to guess? John Owen, Mortification of Sin. Because it's only 80 pages. (laughs) Also happens to be the best book on the mortification of sin. And right now, since it's free at LibriVox, everything is free at LibriVox, I'm listening to it again. Now I have to remember why I just brought that up. Let me see if I can remember. Oh, yes. He points out this 
this power, this, this indwelling sin in us that is the corpse ready to prove itself not to be a corpse for those who don't kill it, is never sleeping. It is armed to the teeth and always killing you. Always. Always. Always, always, always. Every minute of every day and in your dreams, it is after you to kill you. If you fold your arms and do no war, you go the other direction. So it is possible I have overemphasized the, the imagery of life is a fight, a faith, and a war against sin. But my sense is that, if anything, I have struck this drum too little. You will have to be the judge or somebody will be. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you is not just good John Owen. It's good St. Paul. Which brings me to just two questions I want to try to answer in this message. How dangerous is it? Dangerous is sin in you, believer. And second, how shall we put it to death? And and particularly pastors, how shall you help your people put it to death? I, I know the title is the pastor and his people in the battle against sin. And so virtually everything I'm thinking of here is, is aimed to help pastors help people put their sin to death, successfully make war against it. So first question, how dangerous is it? I, and the reason I ask this is because I think our people need to know how dangerous it is, and very many don't. I'm talking about sin in believers, in church members, in the people that you're looking at every Sunday morning. How dangerous is their sin? I think one of the reasons that worship services in America by the thousands are so playful and amusing and entertaining and casual and flippant and jokey and trifling and downright downright silly is that there's so little sense that anything ominous is really at stake in this service. This service is is for secure believers. We're all secure. And it's to have fun with each other, singing and listening to an entertaining talk, and, and then having coffee, and having the world come watch us have fun. So they will want to have fun too. I think that's pretty much the, the image. In fact, I have a real uh, little and earnest peeve. Fun has become an adjective and is the most common word, I think, today used among pastors to describe their happiness in ministry. That's very telling. All of you do it. Just about. I mean, I hear it everywhere. Having a blast in the work. You know? Oh, we're having fun. I said, well, yeah, I, my, lots, of, lots of people who say that are not superficial people. They've just absorbed the language from superficial people. <laughs> that word is superficial. I mean, if any word is superficial, the word fun is superficial. It's not a great word to describe rescuers from perishing or people who are wonderfully robust in their spurgeonic humor. There are better words. Like, I'm not going to give you my favorite words. (laughs) All that just to say, I think that pervading the American church is such a chipper, light, flippant, jokey, entertainment-oriented event on Sunday morning, nobody would even dream anybody here might be going to hell, even the deacons. 
because they're in love with their sin and not putting it to death, and the pastor would never dream of telling them that. It would not sound chipper. Fun. I was changed forever in the class on Romans 1 to 8 I had with Dan Fuller in seminary. Just changed forever. I mean, the categories that were blown away and that got reestablished, and one of them was in Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And I can remember, there's 15 of us in this class, we're arcing our way through Romans. I'm saying, Dr. Fuller, is that spoken to believers? He says, well, looks like it. Let's just look at the, look at the context. Let's, let's see here. This is 45 years ago. I can remember this. My circuits were so blown that I have never thought the same about worship, about small groups, about counseling, about personal devotions, about life. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Go to hell. That's what that means. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll go to heaven. You will live forever. So if you live according to the flesh, you'll perish Come under the eternal wrath of God, live according to the flesh, and if by the Spirit you are killing sin, then you'll have life forever. And Paul doesn't pause to say, now I'm not talking to those of you who are elect. I'm just talking to those people who might have, you know, listened in on the reading of this letter at Rome who are not in the church. They're not the saints who are at Rome that I mentioned in chapter 1. I'm only talking to the non-elect here who might be listening because the non-elect are the only ones who could possibly perish. And so uh, that's all I'm talking to. And the rest of you people who, who have the assurance of your salvation don't need to listen to verse 13. He does not say that. In fact, you look at, look at and he's, he's pushing our nose down in the text. And, and you look at verse 15. Paul could say, you, the people he's talking to, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Oh, that's really good. Yes, that's what I want to hear. You are adopted. You have the Holy Spirit. Then he says in verse 10, if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, your spirit is life because of righteousness. And then he says in verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you go to hell. You, you, you. Now, how can he talk like that to the saints? Because that's what this letter is written to according to Romans 1-7. The saints are in Rome to whom he says, you have the spirit of adoption. That, this is all a transcript from Romans 1 to 8 class 45 years ago. Well, I'm not saying, I, I, would, I wouldn't talk that way to my Sunday school class. And I can remember, Dr. Fuller saying, we should, you should. It's in the Bible, it's written to Christians. I love him still. Thousands of pastors today would never talk like that to their people, which is why Sunday morning is glib. Nothing feels at stake here. Nothing feels like there's any fire anywhere. There's, hell is so far away and sin is so inconsequential might affect a few rewards you get Paul could talk that way he looks right into the, the saints in, 
in Rome and says, if you live according to the flesh, you will perish. When was the last time you said that to your people, eyeball to eyeball, pastor? If you live according to the flesh, I'm saying that to you pastors. If you live according to the flesh, you go to hell. The reason Paul could talk like that is because his understanding of the words that he spoke is that the way people receive them would confirm who they are. The child of God, moved by the Holy Spirit, hears the words of God and says to himself, Self, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Oh God, this is a gracious warning to me. This is given to me to lead me safely to eternal life. This is your mercy, O God, to me, to help me take up the sword of the Spirit and trust in the promises of your grace and make war on my sin. O God, you are the captain leading me safely through the battlefield until that glorious day. Thank you for that pastor and his sermon and that word of warning to me, your elect child. How do you think that song comes true? He holds you. He holds you by the word and the spirit making you listen to verse 13 and do it and thus confirm who you are. But the worldly Christian says, when he hears verse 13, I I don't need warnings like that. I don't like it when preachers talk like that, threatening us, church members with perishing. I don't like it. I'm a Christian. I'm secure. I am saved by grace for goodness sakes. I don't need threatening words like that. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's for somebody else. Of course, fighting with temptation is a good thing, but goodness gracious, don't make such a big deal out of it like threatening. I don't think my eternal security hangs on my fighting sin. That's the world talking. That's the flesh talking. And perhaps... Unless something dramatic changes, an unbeliever talking. I don't care if he's a pastor or a deacon or the wife of one of them. So 45 years ago, I'm sitting there as we wrestle with Romans 8.13 in its context. And I came to have some real changes in my head because I grew up believing something like there are salvation sermons on Sunday and there are edification sermons on Sunday. And now, having come to understand the way Paul talks to Christians in Romans 8.13 and many other places like that, I see every edification sermon as a salvation sermon. Because God has ordained to use the preaching of his word to confirm his elect children in their calling, thus enabling them to fight against their sin, thus keeping them from destruction and bringing them safe to glory. Every sermon I preach, I smell hell. If it's all believers, 
Because they must persevere or they perish. And I'm the means appointed by God for this little part of their life to help them on to glory. That's not light to me. I'm not joking about that. I'm not going to create a service where it's a rah-rah, jokey entertainment service where that makes no emotional sense. That's not going to go there. And it grieves me how many thousands of churches have gone there. Eternal life is found only on one path. Narrow is the way that leads to life and few that be to find it. Eternal life is found only on one path. Truth-loving, Christ-trusting, God-enjoying, spirit-dependent, sin-killing. That's the path. You off that path? No assurance of eternal life coming from me. You might have it because there is such a thing as wandering and backsliding. But I'm not telling you you've got it because you've given me no reason to. Pastors, we want to help our people stand in the biblical pattern. Christ died for me. Therefore, in my union with Christ by faith alone, I died to sin. Therefore, biblically, I'm going to kill my sin 24-7 while the Spirit gives me life. Let it be in my dreams as well. So how dangerous is sin? It is so powerful and so deceptive and so pervasive. If it's not killed, it will kill you eternally. If you've never read The Mortification of Sin by John Owen, please do it. Another way to say it is that killing our own sin is the same as, putting it positively, pursuing holiness, right? Killing your sin is negative. Pursuing holiness positive mean the same thing. And what does Hebrews 12, 14 say about pursuing holiness? It says, pursue the holiness without which you won't see the Lord. Which is the same as, if you don't kill sin, you perish. That's how dangerous it is. And that's how crucial pursuing holiness is. Jesus put it like this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If you make peace with lust, I'm secure. Lusting can't destroy me. If you make peace with lust, you will perish. So how serious is sin? Infinitely serious. How serious is the fight against sin? Infinitely serious. Our job, pastors, is to help people in that, which makes the services on Sunday infinitely serious. And we'll come back and say, it's the happiest hour of the week. We are committed to serious joy. You think that's not possible? Come on over to Bethlehem. Still, I haven't been a pastor of Bethlehem for two years. Here's the question, crucial question. Is that true? Namely, that if you don't put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, you will perish. Is that true because, well, Piper's just given it up. Our justification now is not based on grace and Christ and faith. It's based on merit and self and works. Is that why it's 
Is that why verse 13 is in the New Testament of Romans 8? No. It's because grace that justifies on that basis is also the power that sanctifies. It's because Christ who forgives on that basis is also the Christ who fights with us and for us. It's because faith that connects us with God's propitiation of his wrath on that basis is the faith that connects us with his power to kill sin. That's why the verses in the Bible, that's the way God saves. His grace justifies and sanctifies. His son is our perfection and purifier. The gift of faith unites us to the pardon of Christ and the power of the Spirit. That's the way God saves sinners. No other way. Don't pull them apart. Don't say, I want justification given. I want perfection imputed. I want pardon granted, but I don't want sanctification. I don't want purification, and I don't want power. Those meddle with my days. You cannot rend the fabric of salvation. God does it his way, or he doesn't do it. Rather, we are saved by welcoming grace active in justification and sanctification. We're saved by welcoming Christ, perfection imputed and purification imparted. We are saved by welcoming or having faith, the channel of pardon for sin and the channel of power for holiness. That's the way we are saved. That's the way we receive them. You cannot rend that fabric and chop it up in little pieces and take the parts of Jesus or grace or faith you like and leave the rest away. You just can't do it. God won't have his salvation destroyed by our preferences. Jude says, grace without power is licentiousness. Hebrews says, Christ, who does not help us do the will of God, is no great shepherd. James says, faith without works is dead. So, yes, sin is dangerous, sin is deadly dangerous, and we should be killing it because that's the only path that leads to life. But no, it is not because Grace has been replaced by merit. It's not because Christ has been replaced by self. And it's not because faith has been replaced by works. No, no, no. It's because grace and Christ and faith are channels of imparted power and holiness and imputed pardon and perfection. That's why Romans 8.13 is there and says what it says. If you live according to the flesh, you perish. And if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you go on to eternal life. So, since sin is mortally dangerous and killing sin is necessary for eternal life, since life is a free gift, by grace, on the basis of Christ, through faith, how shall we put it to death? Last question. Second and last question. First was, how dangerous is sin? Second question, last question, how are we going to put it to death? My answer is first, that in order to strike a blow, a killing blow at the root, you have to know what the root is. And that was my first message. The root of sin is preferring anything to God. Or a nature that prefers anything 
above God. A nature that is satisfied more in anything than it is in God. A nature that treasures anything more than it treasures God. That's the root of all sinning. You need to know that. Your people need to know that if they're going to take aim with the bow, sword, gun. It's going to take aim at the root of that sin. They got to know what it is. Where is it? Where is it? I want to shoot it. I want to kill it. I want to replace it. I want to rip it out. What is it? Pastor, have you taught them? My mother taught me almost everything I know domestically because my dad was away from home all the time. How to cut the grass, how to make pancakes. When you see the bubbles around the edge, you need to flip it. How to make French fries in the oil, get the oil boiling first, otherwise they'll be soggy. On and on and on. And she also taught me how to pull Bermuda grass out of South Carolina ridden mud. Get it by the roots. If you don't get it by the roots, waste your time. So your people are going to waste a lot of time if you don't tell them what the root is. So that's what I tried to do the first night. And now we're committed here to putting it to death. <laughs> it's just, it's just so much fruit snipping, branch pruning, and not root severing. Jesus said, Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. Kill a tree. Don't pick fruit, throw it away. What good's that do? Matthew 12, 33, every healthy tree bears good fruit. Every diseased tree bears bad fruit. There is no eternal point in mustering your willpower to stop a sin and leave the entire root system in place. I said, there's no eternal point. There are real social benefits in that. This is a total another conference. I am glad that God and the Bible and magistrates erect dams to the river of human sinfulness so that people don't drive down 11th Avenue in front of my house at 120 miles an hour. I am glad. They're not godly for doing it. They just don't want to be arrested. That's a, that's a benefit to culture. We don't kill each other as much. We don't steal as much. We don't perjure as much. Why? Go to jail. That's a good thing. It's clamping down the sin, keeping a lid on the roots. That's not what the church is about. <laughs> and you don't want to teach your people to fight their sin that way, right? <laughs> Keep a lid on it at home. Like God doesn't have, he's not even as good as Superman. He can see through lids. <laughs> Rather, we are to strike it at the root. That I spent an hour and four minutes talking about on last night. So it's not outward moral improvement, it's, it's sin killing at the root. So I'll say again, if, if we pastors want to help our people kill the root of sin, they have to know what it is, and I argue that it's treasuring anything more than God. There's another way to say it, I pointed out, namely Romans 3.23, all have sinned that is, come short of the glory of God. So, what's our root problem? What are, what's the root problem of all the people in our churches that we're going to help kill sin? The root problem is their minds come short of knowing God truly. Their minds come short, all of sin, and come short of the glory of God. Their minds come short of knowing Him. They're suppressing the truth. 
The, the devil is blinding their minds. Sin is blinding their minds. They're looking every which way. They're seeing the world wrong, wrong, wrong. Even as believers, we're all prone to see the world wrong. We need help daily from the illumination of the Spirit, the Word, small groups, preaching. Keep our eyes alert and wide. And, and secondly, their, their hearts are coming short of treasuring God duly. A little rhyme there. Our minds fall short of knowing him truly. Our hearts fall short of treasuring him duly. Therefore, our whole soul falls short of seeing and savoring God as supremely valuable. Now, I think once you describe the main problem that way, Pastor, you know your agenda. Don't you? What you do every week, every elder meeting, every counseling session, every small group, every banquet that you host, you know what you're called to do, right? And what you're called to do is humanly impossible. Because those people that you're going to help see the surpassing value of God are blind in many ways. And only God can open the eyes of the blind. When the rich man looked at his riches, heard Jesus say, follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. You'll have me. And the rich man looks at his riches, and he looks at Christ, and he prefers money. Jesus says to his disciples, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they fell back saying, then who can be saved? And Jesus didn't say, whoa, 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 you misunderstood me. I didn't mean it was impossible. Instead, he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It is impossible. Our job is impossible, pastors. The only thing that matters in our ministry is impossible. If you can do it, it's not as important as the things you can't do. Our job is impossible. So what is your job? How do you help your people go to the root and kill sin? And the answer is we must open their eyes so that they see the all-satisfying beauties worth, glory, treasure of God over the rewards of the sin they love and prefer so much. We want our people to be brokenhearted that they have preferred anything to God for so long, and we want them henceforth to see and savor God over all things, and where that happens, sin is at the end of its dominion, and it happens by Showing them God in Christ, in all of his manifold works and ways. Of course, if we're faithful to the Scriptures in showing them the surpassing worth, beauty, attractiveness, satisfying God, if we're faithful to the Scriptures, there will be a mingling of warnings and wonders. And getting that proportion right is no easy task. And there's where I, 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 I may have not in 33 years gotten it right. A mingling of warning and wonder. If you're faithful to the Scriptures, there will be both. They must know that if they see a wonder, they can delight in God. And if they see a warning, they will be chased away from ever, whatever you're warning them against to God and His superior beauty. God must be portrayed as all-satisfyingly glorious, but the Bible is pervaded by warnings. They're everywhere. Warnings, warnings, threatenings. 
Why, why should we, you use those? Because nobody loves God because you warn them they're going to hell. Nobody. Telling somebody that they might go to hell if they look at pornography doesn't make them say, oh, God is wonderful. Why would you do it then? Because even though warnings don't cause anybody to love God, they can inform people that they are blind to the beauty of God and on their way to be destroyed because they can't see God for who He is, namely infinitely worthy of their love. If you, if it would have been really helpful if someone late at night would have hollered annoyingly with a great warning, Jacob, that's not Rachel you're about to have sex with. <laughs> now, that warning would not make Jacob love Rachel. Just happens to be really useful <laughs> to help him go to bed with the right lady. Can you, can, I mean, seriously, your people are going to bed with the wrong person. No, warnings don't make them love the right person, just might keep them from entering into everlasting bondage to the wrong lady of sin. Don't be smarter than the Bible in your homiletics if the warnings are in the Bible, put the warnings in your sermon. So yes, pastors, there's a suitable, biblically balanced way for our people to mingle warnings and wonders. I do believe with all my heart that the lion's share of your preaching and teaching and counseling should be the portrayal of God in every text as more desirable than anything. Let me say that again because easy to talk about warnings and cause people to get all shocked up. The lion's share, and you figure out the proportion, go by the book you're using, the biblical book you're using, the lion's share of your ministry of the Word should be the portrayal of God in Christ as more desirable than anything in the world. I, I would like to think, as I look back over my life, that the most common theme woven through sermons that are negative and positive is to try to strike the note, God is better. Christ is better. You are a fool for not embracing Him above all things. Don't be a fool. Be wise. Open your eyes. Don't go to bed with the wrong woman. Didn't go well for Jacob. A lot of years of anguish. Indeed, a whole life. So, the answer to pastors, how you're going to help your people kill sin is that week in and week out, in season and out of season, by word and example, you'll show them the folly of treasuring anything above God and the glory of seeing Him, savoring Him for who He really is. At the root, of all sin is preferring anything over God and we show people the beauties of God with as much clarity as we can so that they abandon their preference for sin and get on the path of holiness and sin killing. 
we kill, we kill the compelling attractiveness of God's substitutes in our own life, and then we help our people get a spirit-anointed, Bible-saturated, Christ-exalting sword of the Word in their hand to put sin to death with the superior attractiveness of Jesus. Let me close with one illustration how this works biblically. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 5 goes like this. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is your holiness, your sin killing. This is the will of God, your successful sin killing on the way to holiness and sanctification. By the way, there's a little parenthesis here. Did you hear in Conrad Mbewe's talk today the confirmation of almost everything I've said in the logic of verse 20 of Romans 6 where it said you were enslaved to sin and now you are enslaved to God leading to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Just exactly the same. That's a summary of my first hour, whatever. 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That you kill that sin. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness. There's some translation issues there. It doesn't affect my point. Let's go with this one. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, as the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, he didn't just throw in that phrase, who do not know God, so we'd know which group of Gentiles he's talking about. The Gentiles, Romans 1, suppress the knowledge of God. There's a massive ignorance of God, a willful ignorance of God, and he says that's why they're in bondage to their own lusts. Don't fail to control your body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. See the logic there? They don't know God. If they knew God, this would change. Which is Romans 1.28. They do not approve to have God in their knowledge. Therefore, he gives them up to a debased mind and they operate in the bondage of lusts. But knowing God, stopping preferring ignorance and preferring more and more and more knowledge of an infinitely satisfying God would change sex. It would. Paul's building his whole argument on that assumption. So I would just ask you, look around in life, in your church, look around. How many Christians do you see bent with all their powers to know God more and more? <clears throat> more truly, more clearly, more sweetly. Or do you see thousands fighting graduate school sins with grammar school knowledge of God? To which some of you would say, whoa, 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 whoa. There are as many PhDs in theology who commit adultery as less educated people. To which I would say, probably more. Why is it that people with PhDs in theology <coughs> commit adultery? They don't know God. You can read theology 10 hours a day, 40 years long, and not know God as beautiful, all-satisfying, highest treasure of your life. Who cares about knowing God the way the devil knows God? He hates everybody. Knowledge of God helps him hate people. 
We're talking about knowing God here in 1 Thessalonians. They don't know God. They don't know God really as who he is, infinitely valuable, infinitely beautiful, infinitely satisfying. Why your soul was made. There are more pleasures at his right hand, more eternal joys in his presence that you could have in 10,000 sexual trysts. The question is, do you know that? Because if you know that, sin will have lost its dominion in your life. Yes, it will. So, pastors, our job is impossible. We are aiming to help our people see that when they are blind to that, right? You know who they are. They've been in your church for a long, long time. You pour out your heart, they look blank, nothing. Hard. Paul said, Jesus said to Paul in uh, Acts 26, 17, I am sending you to open their eyes. So I'm sending you to do what only I can do. That's exactly right. So every pastor in here should hear this. This is Jesus' word to you tonight. I am sending you to open their eyes. That they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. A place for the sin killers by faith in me. People attain holiness and power to kill sin when their eyes are open to the supreme beauty and glory and all-satisfying worth of God. And, of course, only God can make that happen. Nobody just decides to see God as beautiful. Decisions are good once you see. You can't make yourself see with a decision. I hold up a painting which you think is ugly, and I say, See it as beautiful. Decide it's beautiful. That's just, that's not the way the human heart works. If you feel it's ugly, it's ugly. I can't. You can't say, okay, I can put that on a test. I can fill up. That is a beautiful painting. I get the right grade for the art class. But you can't. What you have to have is your eyes open. That's our job, Pastor. I'm sending you to open their eyes. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, after you have loved your people well and taught them well, quote, this is 2 Timothy 2, 25, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. So how do they get free? How do they get the sin killed? God opens their eyes. They wake up from the stupor, the drunkenness of the darkness that they had preferred and the light that they had suppressed overwhelms them. God is the sun now in the solar system of their life and all the planets are coming into orbit and everything is starting to be beautiful again. That's a miracle. And it's our job. It's our job. We assist miracles. We are midwives of miracle births which leaves us with this overwhelming sense, doesn't it, pastors? We move through our ministry desperately praying. We pray. We pray this. Oh God, open my eyes that I may see wonders out of your word. And after you have opened my eyes, and I have done my best to portray you as you really are in these texts, 
would you grant that my people would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they may know what is the hope to which you've called them, and what are the riches of the glorious inheritance, and so would you thus enable them to sever the root of preferring anything to you. That's the way we pray. That's the way we preach. So, in the end, pastors, warfare isn't so bleak, is it? If the lion's share is devoted to painting beautiful paintings of the most beautiful person, is that a bleak life? It is a serious life. I'm not taking back a word I said. It's a serious life on Sunday morning. I'm not joking around. Uh But it's a happy life. Not a fun life. It's a happy, deeply gratifying, satisfying life. Our main work, by the Spirit of God, with the Word of God, portraying the glory of God as more beautiful, more satisfying than anything in the world, that's a seriously happy business. So give yourself to helping your people kill the sin that kills their joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's a serious business we're about and we want to keep praying for each other because prayer That is, the tapping into supernatural power is our only hope. Ministry is nothing if it's not supernatural. And so come, Holy Spirit, just come. If there's any brothers or sisters here whose eyes have never been awakened to the beauties of Christ so that they themselves prefer you over everything, open their eyes now. And would you give them such an anointing that they can just lift up their voice in a counseling session or a funeral or a wedding or a banquet or Sunday morning. Lift up their voice and speak on your behalf and eyes open. Oh God, that's why we're in the ministry. Come, give us that anointing. That grace, I pray, through Christ. Amen.